Mitchell has his head up. Welcome to the Junkyard Pod. On today's episode, we have seen the good, the bad, and the ugly with this Cleveland Cavaliers team. They delivered a we are so back moment on Sunday versus Golden State, only to follow it up with an it's so over performance against the Thunder. Now today, we're going to discuss what went right versus the Warriors, what went wrong against OKC, and does this Cavalier team have an identity crisis to start the season? I'm Tony Pesta of Fear the Sword and Write Down Euclid. Joined by Corey Walsh of Fear the Sword and Jackson Flickinger of Write Down Euclid. So let's jump right into this. And I want to start off with the man, the myth, and the legend, Darius Garland. He recorded eight turnovers, a career worst last night. It was maybe the worst game we've seen from him in the last three years. Um, and it marks an overall slow start from DG. He has 24 total turnovers to just 27 assists to start the season. He's shooting two of 15 from downtown, but he's getting to the line at a career high rate. He's shooting 47% from the field, which is also a career high, and that's despite the horrible uh, three-point shooting, and it's because he's shooting 61% from two-point range, which is 10% higher than even his best season, so there's a lot going on for Garland, including recovering from a hamstring injury, but I'm going to finally shut up and dish this over to Corey to get us started. What are you feeling from Darius Garland's first four games of the season? I feel like Darius Garland is suffering from the same stuff that I feel like the whole Cavaliers team through the early stretch has been. And that's just been, it feels like they're killing themselves with lazy decision-making at times. Feels like the, at the end of games, the Cavs start, well, at the beginning of games, Cavs start off real slow. It seems that they have to slog their way back throughout the entire game. It's very rare they're coming out to hot starts. And Darius had far from a hot start to the season by then immediately after the opening game, deciding to go on the injured list for four, three or four games before just coming back. And now it's never easy for a player to go from not from basically not playing after the preseason into the regular season when most players are getting ramped up to an NBA level. And you thought after the Warriors game, you're like, wow, that was seamless. He's pretty much back. Like, this is great. And then we see the Thunder game where it looks like you basically took Darius Garland and kidnapped him and replaced him with a YMCA hooper. The The decision making felt like it was unforced, but in his mind, it was predetermined on all of his reads where he was going to go. And he really just killed whatever momentum it felt like the Cavs had, and especially in that OKC game where it just felt like no matter how ugly the Cavs played, the Thunder we're just kind of keeping them along for the ride. And even though there were several moments where the Cavs could have made a run, Darius and just the Cavs offense as a whole outside of Donovan Mitchell, I felt like really just shot themselves in the foot repeatedly. It's been a really kind of an interesting start to the season for Darius Garland, just because he's kind of not doing the things that you expect him to be doing. Um, so like when you're talking about who Darius Garland is one of the first things that you think about is his three-point shooting. He's a 13% three-point shooter this year. And it's just four games, but it's like if his three-point shot isn't falling and he doesn't really have that um confidence in it, then he kind of becomes sort of a different player. And I think Garland, for whatever reason, is somebody who does struggle with confidence in his three-point shot, especially when it isn't falling. He's somebody who seems like if his first two three-pointers are going to go, then he's going to take a bunch of them. But if he's not 
if they're not falling, he's just going to stop. You know, like Donovan Mitchell, he shot one for nine from three yesterday. That's not a, you know, confidence isn't a problem. But Darius Garland, he uh, didn't make a three against Golden State and then comes out against the um, Thunder and only takes three of them. So it's just kind of, that's, the three-point shot isn't the problem with Darius right now, but it's kind of, I think it kind of underlines some of what Darius's issues are. They A lot of them feel like confidence-based. And one of the things that's kind of interesting about Darius this season is he's, it's early, but he's done a really good job of um, being like a three-level scorer minus the three-point shot. Uh, he's finishing 75% of his shots at the rim, and he's doing a good job of getting to the line. We kind of saw that Thunder game, um, all of those turnovers, really obscured how crafty of a scorer he showed that he could be, especially in the paint. So it's like there are things there that he's doing well, and I think you can see, hey, if he continues to show development as a scorer inside the three-point line and also cleans up the turnovers like we all expect, he could be taking a leap. But it feels a lot kind of like what we saw at the beginning of last season when he was coming back from that eye um, uh, injury that he had where it's just like he just looks out of sorts. And you see that when he's like conducting the offense. Yeah, it's, it's been an uncharacteristic start for Garland because typically when you think of what Darius brings to the floor, it's he's going to score efficiently and he's going to take care of the ball and create for others. And he hasn't really done either of those things consistently yet. Um, the aggression has always been a problem for Garland. Even when he is rolling, it seems like he has a tendency to just stop shooting, even though he's you know having a really good game. And especially when he's not shooting well, you see him kind of fade into the background. So I think at least part of this is him ramping back up to speed as he comes back from a hamstring injury. And this is only the, uh, the Thunder game was his fourth game of the year. So I think part of that is just getting back into game speed. Um, we saw a lot of weird, almost lazy turnovers, but really to me, I think it was more of him just giving the ball up rather than trying to make a play. Some of them were like, it looked like he just wanted to get rid of the ball and, and in areas where he needed to be aggressive. And then you see the opposite too, where it's like, well, now he's being overly aggressive and he's dribbling into trouble and there's nowhere for him to pass the ball. We saw that in the Thunder game a lot too. Goes into the paint, multiple defenders collapse on him and he leaves his feet and he doesn't really have anywhere to go with it. So those are the type of things that with Darius, you typically rely on him to make really quality decisions and protect the ball. And so I don't expect the three point. I, I expect him to return to form as a shooter and I expect him to start taking care of the ball as the year goes on. Well, that's what I was thinking with what Jackson said, where usually when Darius goes like zero for two off the bat and three pointers, you kind of feel like he becomes invisible at times during the game because his confidence gets so low and he's just goes fully into facilitator mode to where the defense almost has to like pay more attention to the guys around him than Darius himself as an offensive factor. But in the Warriors game, he just put his head down and decided to be more aggressive and kind of put his own stamp on the game, which is something that I feel like is a common complaint for Cavs fans when it comes to Darius is that he never, it seems like it takes too much for him to go into a game and then decide, all right, I'm going to be aggressive. It doesn't seem like that's like his first shift in his mindset, especially with Donovan Mitchell around. It's usually Donovan's thing to be like, all right, I can tell Darius is struggling. I'm going to put the team on my back in this case. But in the Golden State game, it was Darius kind of thought, hmm, maybe there's like some shift mentally here with Darius. But 
the, the I feel like the offensive aggressiveness, like uh, Jackson said, did carry over because we were seeing like him score at levels that like he normally doesn't take shot attempts from kind of just like an offensive display. But at the same time, I feel like even though his shot aggressiveness wasn't was there, I still I felt like his overall mentality of being aggressive wasn't there because like you said, Tony, I don't think the uh, the turnovers were a byproduct of him like being like care it was like aggressively careless like he wanted mm -hmm. to it was everything was like kind of predetermined in his mind what he wanted to do and when it didn't happen it was more of forcing it than just carelessly throwing it away yeah like there was a play in the thunder games i think it was mobley kind of posting up on the elbow and garland kind of just lobs a pass into him like going through the motions and that's an area where like if you're locked in you're paying close attention you realize okay that pass isn't that available i need to either zip it to mobley or we're going into the next option of the play but so much of this feels like garland early on is kind of just giving the ball up like he, he isn't feeling confident in himself maybe the hamstrings bothering him whatever it might be i'm not trying to make an excuse for him i just think it's a lot of not just trying to get rid of the ball in areas where you're the point guard and you need to dictate the offense uh and go ahead jackson uh i kind of want to talk about the turnovers and kind of a little different section but one of the mm. things that i want to kind of highlight right now is that when we, when we look at the Cavs in total um their biggest problem is they're just getting murdered when donovan mitchell is off the floor um they are being outscored by 17.2 points per 100 possessions when donovan mitchell is off the floor and if you're wondering that's in the fourth percentile it's very bad um you just can't really win games like that and what you see is the offense is horrid. Uh, they have a 102.7 offensive rating, and that just leads to bad defense because teams are just turning those long uh, defensive rebounds into transition opportunities, and it's just like snowballing. And we saw that against the Thunder um, in the first quarter. Uh, Donovan Mitchell played the first eight minutes. The Cavs were tied when he left the game, and then... By the end of the first quarter, uh, they were down seven. So it's just kind of like it's not on Donovan. I mean, it's it's not on Darius Scarlett. He's not the reason why the Cavs have been absolutely awful when Donovan Mitchell's off the floor because he's missed a lot of games. Um, but I think that Thunder game just really highlights how important he is. He is the one that needs to keep the offense afloat. He's the one that needs to keep the team on track. And when he's not doing that, it's not working. Whereas in the uh, Warriors game, it was the exact different uh, situation. Uh, when Donovan Mitchell left the court, Darius Garland was able to extend the lead, and that's why they were able to get out and you know dominate like they did. Yeah, and let's use that as a good opportunity here to pivot a little because I think the Cavs go as Darius Garland goes in many ways, and so I think this is a good chance just to talk about the Cavs' identity as a whole. Um, we've seen the best and worst versions of this team. Uh, they're in the driver's seat all night against Golden State, their best win of the season, their most complete game. And then they get punched early and have to crawl back in games like the one versus OKC. Um, if there's a reason for optimism, they played about as badly as you possibly can, and they still almost won that game. So if you're looking for a shred of hope, there it is. But that's what's so frustrating is that this team can win any game that they play. The problem is doing it consistently. The problem is going from a good team to a great team. That's what they're trying to do, and they're just not there yet. It, they haven't really been able to put it together consistently. And so, Jackson or Corey, what do you? What should their identity be? What is it going to take for this team 
to consistently dominate each game? Um, so I think that's a like a loaded question. Um, I think kind of looking at the quotes after the game and like listening to them, uh, I think they were a little more concerned about this loss than I think they should have been. I think this loss was, you know, they gave the game away with all the turnovers, but I think Oklahoma City is a really bad matchup. Um, we've seen them really struggle against teams that can throw length at Garland. Like you, like you were saying, Garland is kind of like this team goes as Garland goes and kind of the same thing goes with Mobley. And both really have struggled at times when you put them in matchups where there were one Garland's going up against somebody who is who, going up against a really bigger backcourt and then Mobley when he's going up against like a smaller front court. Um, we've kind of seen issues and that's kind of what the Thunder threw at him threw at, threw at both of them. So it's like they struggle. Uh, Garland more so struggled and kind of this team just really wasn't able to really like get anything going on either end just because of that. And I think, I think it's easy to overreact to how bad they played, but I don't, you know, it's kind of reminiscent of what we've seen against the Raptors the last couple of years who are a very similar team. I don't think the Raptors were a better team the last two years, but they were just a tough matchup for the Cavs. So I wouldn't panic too much, especially when we talk about this team wanting to take the step from good to great. There was a lot of bad things that we saw in that Thunder game, but I don't know if it's really, really a sign that this team is not capable of taking that step. I feel like it's hard to for the Cavs to even like establish the identity that I think they're going for, which I think is a similar to last year's where it's where they really want to like have their defense be the main generator of their offense. And when that happens, their offense flies at the same rate it did last year. And then when it comes to their half-court offense, I think it's really wanting to run with the nucleus of Garland and Mitchell, at least one of them on the floor, and operating with the spacing that they got around them. The issue for them through this far in the season is that they just haven't had the bodies necessary that they were imagining were going to be surrounding their nucleus. And part of the, the time, like three-fourths of their core is not on the floor and in the mid if it's all on relying on donovan mitchell then it, when he goes off the floor we're just getting like jackson said absolutely nuked in those minutes like it's almost insurmountable the 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 oh my god the deficit that they this team goes under and i i know that they definitely i know that jb gets a ton of flack online they're like this coaching is absolutely atrocious but jb needs to go but at the same time it's like it's easy to like look in the offseason see what you think is going to happen and then we all know that injuries are a part of the league and how can you really establish something with guys that were supposed to be your seventh eighth ninth tenth men now being thrust into roles that like are nice to have like one of them have to step in and play well but now you're asking like five guys to kind of play above the level that we think they're capable of one thing i will say is that i think this team has been like the worst version of themselves so far because you're not getting allen and mobley who when they're both on the floor this team has been very good um but you're just not getting them on the floor very often so you have a tough time establishing that defensive identity and an another thing is they're not 
they're playing with more pace, obviously, but they're not like running up and down the court like, you know, the um, like the Kings. But one of the problems that we've seen this year, like the biggest defensive difference between last year is kind of how they're defending in transition. And that's I think that a lot of that's because they're shooting way more threes and they're missing so many of them. They're only shooting 33% from deep, which three-point misses equal long rebounds, long rebounds equal transition opportunities. And that's kind of where the Cavs have had a hard time establishing a defensive identity. Whereas last year, they played super slow. They kept everything in front of them and they were able to establish that identity. Even when one of Mobley and Allen was missing, I think they still had a semblance of a defensive identity. Whereas this season, it's like they haven't really done that. And it's that's maybe where the conversation is like, is this team going down the right path? I think that they are because I think we saw that they kind of like raised their floor with how they were playing last year, but kind of also lowered their ceiling just because you can't play with two bigs and a half court offense that's really slow and expect to really do anything. But you know, at some point, you just have to trust that guys like Struess, Garland, Niang, to a lesser extent, I guess, are actually going to start hitting threes. A lot of their bench players, too, have also become... They basically swapped out bench players that had a higher defensive floor with ones that have a higher offensive ceiling. And when your defense gets ravaged by injuries, by losing Okoro at times, and by losing Jarrett at times... Having to rely on names like Niang and Dean Wade really don't necessarily help cement that identity as well. I definitely agree with you there because, like, you see, like, Okoro could have really helped in that game against OKC. But also, I think this team wants to move away from having to rely on Okoro like that just because they want, you know, we kind of saw that in the playoffs when they said, we're going to really play jetty and lavert over you you know like this team kind of knows that okoro helps but kind of caps their offense so that's why you're gonna have to get you're gonna have to win with guys like Struess, lavert yang and when they're not hitting shots i don't really want to make this about Struess because i think Struess has been very valuable to this team and that kind of shows in all those numbers but like they just can't be a 33 percent outside shooting team and play like this and expect to be a good team yeah Uh, establishing an identity is always going to take time uh, regardless of what team you are but especially when you're the Cavs and you have these new these new pieces that they added in the summer and they are trying to transition from the type of team they were last year into a more modern NBA team Uh, they're playing at a faster pace they're attempting more three-pointers and so Putting that all together is going to take some time, and it doesn't help that they've been injured. They're some of their key players, the ones who most help to establish that identity, haven't been available. So we're going to need to be a little patient here. Um, the two things that I want to touch on very quickly as we kind of close this out is Jared Allen, his return, how we feel about him, and you also mentioned Aguero. I do want to talk about both of them, but let's start with Allen. How have we felt about his season so far? I feel like Allen's been very like he kind of re-cemented like what we've all been thinking of how important he is to the defense but also we're seeing offensively that i i feel like the pick and roll has been much more involved in the offense i feel like they kind of strayed away with that with mobley because we all know mobley's not the strongest pick setter on this roster 
But at the same time, I don't know how much more offensively unlocked they are with Allen. It kind of is like you balance the two. You get a lot from the defensive side. Offensively, your variance kind of staggers. And I I mean, it's always nice to have the pick and roll option offensively. And it's but we all kind of know what we're going to get out of Jared Allen offensively. I don't think we were expecting much growth there. And I I feel like it's going to be good for this team in the long run. I think it was really well shown through the early stretch that this team does still need Jared Allen to be at the ceiling of what it can be right now because we're not getting the level of Mobley that we were kind of hoping for, but it's also like the Mobley that I think we all want to play the five is like two to three years away still at like best case scenario. So getting Jared Allen back will help raise the ceiling in both ways. I think it kind of more so raises the floor of this team um, just because I think like what we've seen, the offense has been very good when Jared Allen's been out there um, and the defense has been much improved as well. And I think Jared Allen's rim pressure, he puts on the, you know, he puts on teams is a stark contrast to what Evan Mobley has been doing. Um, And I think we've highlighted that enough like last week where Evan's just not really finishing at the rim like we'd hope he would. Um, So that just really juices the offense. But, you know, I think not to make this about Evan again, because I feel like that's every time I talk about this, I just make it about Evan. But it's like how much this team needs Jared Allen is kind of the problem with this team to a certain extent, because this team needs Jared Allen to be a good defensive team. This team needs Jared Allen to be a good offensive team. But also, if you're playing the Boston Celtics in a playoff series, do you want Jared Allen out there in either context? Like, theoretically, no. And that's kind of like, that's the issue that you're going to keep running into where, like, Jared Allen's so important to what this team does, but also there's, like, a cap. And I think we can, like, we can debate about that because we're not really going to see them run into the cap in the regular season, maybe against, like, good teams. But it's just... I think that's kind of like the overall problem, and I'm not sure how you fix that unless you go and turn Jared Allen into Miles Turner or something like that. I mean, a great example is just that we've got these two Thunder games in such a short amount of time with two different teams getting thrown out on the floor because in the first game, it felt like Chet could kind of get wherever he wanted to go Mm -hmm. against Evan, which you didn't really go into it expecting that because I feel like physically they're kind of built similarly, and you would kind of expect Evan with, years under his belt of NBA level training, he'd be able to kind of get his own, put his back to the basket and kind of make his mark. But he really kind of shied away. I felt like in that game. And then there was a sequence in like the third quarter of that thunder game where they just set up Jared Allen on Chet, like two possessions in a row. And he just classic big bodied his way down. Chet had no like way of stopping Jared Allen on two straight possessions. And I was like, well, it's nice to know that Chet can't actually defend NBA level centers when they're the size of Jared Allen there. He's much more sued to go against the Evan Mobley's. So it kind of shows the li- how Evan Eric Jarrett fills in for what Evan basically can't. Right. And I think that's kind of the issue. Yeah, no, I'm that's I agree. <laughs> Cause we all want Evan to eventually grow into for this team to reach where we want it to go. It, ha- it kind of streamlines through Evan growing into a five or, and it's like, I know people are like, well, you gotta like, he's so good. 
on the wing and he's so good at switching and stuff like that. But if you're going to play that way, which I think Evan is capable on the defensive end, then you just he needs to be a different player on the other side. And we're just not really seeing that. So it just makes the fit very tough when you look at how they're going to play against the best possible teams. So, and it's never a shot at Jared. Jared's really good. We know who Jared is. He is who we thought he was. And the team is much better when he's out there against mm. 95% of matchups. Yeah. And I also, I, I know that you're kind of framing this as an issue and I don't necessarily completely disagree, but I also do think, and we've talked about this before, I think Allen could be the key to kind of making this whole thing work. Because what if Mobley mm-hmm. never does become a full-time center? That's a very real possibility. That might seem like a disappointment, but maybe the best version of Mobley will be a power forward. It's kind of something that we're going to have to keep monitoring as we move forward. Um, as you said, and I want to bring this stat up, the four, the core four this season, they've only played 42 minutes together, but they have a plus 15 net rating. So at least in the regular season, when they're together and they're healthy, there's no doubt that they're very successful. This is like a really good core four to have on your team. The problem is there's obviously some overlapping. There's obviously some limitations with the the way the roster's constructed. And so we'll have to see how that holds up in the playoffs. But I do want to move on and kind of close this out with Isaac Okoro because we wanted to talk about him for a while. He's been injured. They could have really, really used him against OKC. Shea Gilgis-Alexander had like 43 points on like 110% shooting in that game. And I think Okoro would have at least made it a little more difficult for them. Uh, for Shea in that game, but I think when you look at Okoro, and I know you you mentioned this, that maybe he's like too important to the team, that it, it's not good that they need him in the way they do, but I think if you're looking at Okoro right now, and I would probably say he's the seventh man in the rotation for me, and if you look at what he needs to bring every night, this very simplified role, they're asking him to play defense, to apply pressure to the rim on offense, run in transition, attack off the dribble, create something off the dribble, right? Just be able be able to dribble the ball and knock down open threes. But so far this year, he's 6 of 15, about 40% from downtown. He's shown that he can do all of those things. And so if he can continue to do all those things, I think that's a very, very helpful player. And actually, I think that's a really nice guy to have as your seventh man or even eighth man in the rotation. So how do you guys feel about Okoro and kind of what he adds to this team? I... So I do want to say, as the Okoro skeptic on the pod, I do want to say that Okoro is very valuable, and I agree with basically everything that you're saying there. One of the things that I think was really interesting about the beginning of the season um, was kind of like those first couple of games where we saw Isaac kind of play the four, um, or kind of like Struz play the four, whoever you, however you want to parse that out. Um, those like smaller lineups kind of had success, and I'm wondering if in a matchup like the Cavs were in yesterday, if maybe going with a smaller lineup would have actually served them better on both sides. Uh, we can talk about whether that's Evan or Jarrett. doesn't really matter to me. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of like that's where you kind of see Isaac. He gives you kind of that versatility. And, you know, I think you're always going to have problems when you play Mobley, Allen, and Okoro together on offense. I don't think that's really... Like, that's not saying anything new. Everyone knows that. But he gives you that optionality to actually do something different and, show, and like, throw a curveball. Whereas, like, yesterday, they kind of have the guys that they're bringing off the bench don't really provide anything different or anything that Isaac actually does. And that's kind of where 
the issues are, especially when you have guys coming off the bench who, you know, guys like Niang, who you expect to hit shots and isn't, and then isn't able to really provide much else. You have somebody like Wade, who we've talked about is kind of an imperfect player. You know, Isaac Okoro is an imperfect player, but he's actually an imperfect player that you can count on every night to do the one specific thing that he's brought in to do. And if you get more, then this team is, looks very, you know, hard to beat. Well, it was interesting. And like, if there was one sole positive from the early stretch when we were decimated by injury, it's that we kind of saw some creative lineups getting thrown out. And mm-hmm. we did see some scenarios where a Coro at the four was somewhat viable for stretches of games. So you would think with the roster being more healthy and with a Darius running the point, because I don't think Darius was in those lineups that it might actually there could be a world in which we can start seeing a Coro being utilized in different ways than we're just expecting him to guard twos and threes. Especially in like those bench lineups, because a lot of teams don't have like the bench personnel to really push them around. So like when you look at like closing games, I don't know if there's many matchups where it makes a whole lot of sense to close with Isaac, you know, and Allen and Mobley. I mean, last year we really we saw a lot of Karis LeVert actually closing with that group. So it's not something that's anything new, but he does provide some options that you just didn't really have before. And adding Struess, like last year, the Cavs kind of needed the help on the perimeter. So you weren't really able to do that the same way. Whereas like now with Struess and Okoro, I think it's kind of a combination that allows you to do different things depending on the matchup. And that's, the Cavs just aren't a versatile team and being able to throw out a lot of different lineups that have worked, at least in the past, I mean. And you hope that maybe we see that as this team gets fully healthy. Yeah, we talked a lot about this team kind of finding their identity and figuring out what kind of style they're going to play. And I think Okoro is going to actually have a very big impact on establishing that identity. And they don't really have anyone who brings what he brings. Yeah, it is just discouraging when like how important he is just from a perimeter standpoint with like the Cavs not being able to provide any kind of resistance at all to uh, Shea Gildas Alexander. He was just getting where, wherever he wanted, whatever. And I, well, when you, when your off season priority is to focus on offense and perimeter shooting, they're like um, the three and D wing as cliche as it is, is like one of the hardest things to get. So you're not going to be able to pick those up. And they clearly decided that, like you said, they're leaning more towards the offensive side, trying to get rid of that identity. It feels like in a way they kind of went a little aggressive in one side without kind of at least getting some assurances on the defensive end, because none of their signings, you would say, bring anything close to a Coro. And you would argue that the second best question mark pointed defender off their bench last year was Lamar Stevens. And that wasn't even that he's a talented defensive player. It's more that he just has no. the the energy to keep up with these people. And he knows offensively, he was almost like a net negative shot wise. One thing, one thing I will say is I think like the OKC game contrasts so much with the Warriors game. Cause we saw how good of a defense the Cavs can still be, even without Isaac out there, you know, because they had a bunch of three-point shooters. Those three-point shooters weren't hitting any shots. Max Drews went 3 of 10. Garland went 0 of 5. Niang, eh? Okay, Niang had two shots, right? 
Um, so, but like, it wasn't, they like, they weren't just like out shooting the Warriors. It was, they dominated the painted area. And I think you can still do that against a team that has a more traditional, you know, front court. Like, even though the Warriors were famous for going small, they still have, they still play guys like Draymond Green who aren't really like, who aren't great shooters and they aren't like on their own guys who are going to provide a bunch of like rim pressure. Whereas OKC, you know, they were able to spread the calves out in a way that the Warriors weren't like, you know, the Warriors, their pressure is provided by Thompson and Curry. Whereas the Thunder, they're just able to spread everybody out and take everybody off the dribble. So I think it's, that's where it's like, I don't want to get too overreactive because I just think that like Okoro is very helpful and we saw that, but I don't think that like the ceiling or the floor of this team is altered significantly just because of maybe those limitations. Now, if I had to like summarize the, the thunder loss it was just it's hard to beat a team that you're basically giving free points to off the turnovers but the defense mm-hmm. if you could point anywhere that there was the issue i just felt like it was the case of over committing on help defense i feel like the Cavs constantly were in situations where right. the thunder had they're so spread out that they would both try to double off one guy and then they would kick out to the other jalen williams at least five times and jalen williams gets like a three-point shooting contest level open three and that's why they lost pretty much for those and two reasons. That also goes to the defensive re- rebounding, which has been very bad. And games like that, the defensive rebounding is so much worse because when you're out of position, you can't get defensive rebounds and you can't end possessions. I agree with all that. And I do think the Cavs, even without a quarrel, I think they are more capable of playing defense than what we saw against OKC. The Warriors game was a great example of that. They're a really scrappy defensive team. I think their rotations were on point in that game. And then you get to the Thunder game and it's like, course they gave up a lot of very easy points off of their turnovers but to a degree you also just have to tip your hat to okc i mean that's a very unique team where you can put five guys out there can space you out they can all dribble they can all attack their ball movement was crazy there were times where the Cavs would play 20 seconds of really good defense and then finally the you know sixth pass of the possession gets you a blow by and a layup and then also give credit to shea i mean one of the most surgical scorers in the NBA. I know people are upset with some of the free throws. I will say, you know, Karis LeVert got a superstar whistle that game too. So I was, you know, can't complain too much. I'm sure the Thunder fans weren't happy with that. But Shea was also just he's so methodical with the way he plays basketball. He gets to his spot, and it's really, really tough to guard that guy, especially when you don't have someone like Okoro, who in those matchups could be really helpful. But even without a quarrel, like I said, just to recap, I still think they're way better defensively than what they have shown so far this year. And kind of the theme of this episode, my takeaway for most of this, is I think it's just going to take some time for them to put it together. We have to be patient still. I know fans get a little frustrated because it's like, well, how long do we have to wait? Well, more than two weeks, probably, especially considering how injured they were in the beginning. If it's January and they're still one of the worst defensive teams in the NBA, We'll have another pod and we'll discuss what's going wrong there. But I think right now, get healthy. The schedule is going to lighten up in late November and December. And that's going to give them a really good chance to hopefully not have to climb out of a hole. They really aren't that deep in a hole right now. The standings feel worse than they are. As long as they can stay above water, they have a a stretch in November and December where it's like 12 games against like pretty easy, beatable opponents. A lot of the games are at home. 
they have a, a day or two of rest between most of them. And so that to me is going to be one of the more pivotal stretches of the year where it's like, they're either going to climb out of the hole that they dug for themselves, or they're going to rise up the standings and give themselves a cushion moving forward. Why do the NBA schedule makers always make us go out West for brutal stretches to start the year? Can we just it's like so wait like a month? at least or something. Why is it always like, Oh, you had like four nice games. Okay. Yeah. Hope you enjoy the East coast. Go West. Well, all those, all those LeBron teams would go West in like February and March and just like refuse to show up for like a month. So they would lose, you know, 10 out of 15 or something stupid like that. So, you know, going out West just always sucks. I was going to say like, when you were talking about this team, it's also important to remember that like they had no, even training camp because Jared Allen got injured. I think it was like the second or third day of training camp. So they haven't mm. even had that with this core group, which like a, like a stylistic change, a personnel change, and then not even having any like practice time and coming back on a minutes restriction. It's just kind of like the perfect storm of bad things. So I think, yeah. I think, I think if we learned anything, it's that, the Cavs still really struggle without all of their core members, which is a problem because even last year in the playoffs, the four-man lineups uh, of the core four actually were a winning lineup. Um, they outscored the Knicks. It's just every other lineup just got destroyed. So and then there's not a whole lot that makes you think that that is going to change so far. Mm. So that's kind of the other side of the coin yeah i have a quick yes no question for you guys what do you do you feel like after this early stretch and seeing what the celtics are like if the Cavs, it's still feasible for them to be the one seed in the regular season is it feasible yes but i'm not gonna bet on it anymore i think their slow start has really hurt them and i well the celtics have also cooled down a little bit but i'm still like they're the celtics are better than i thought they would be for sure but injuries think, could always happen to them too. So go ahead, Jackson. I think the Celtics start is kind of what, like I pictured the Bucks. like the Bucks mm. are having the start that like I thought they would have. And I thought the Celtics would have a slower start. Um, you can't really predict like the Cavs situation. Um, so, but it's so early. It's November 9th. Like the season goes till April. So like, mm. yes, I, I think the Cavs could. Uh, would I bet on the Cavs? doing that uh no but you know that's it's there's just so much left because even like the celtics team that went to the finals what were they like not good for the first like three months yeah, yeah like, they had like not... an historic turnaround and even the lakers last year like similar too they were awful to start the year and they turned it around well they were they were awful for like five months um, yeah <laughs> and they kind of just turned around in the playoffs. But, you know, the, the point the point remains that there's just so much season left. Like, even the JaVale McGee Cavs were looking good at this point. There's so much time left. The best Cavs, you mean. The worst <laughs> Best of times. That was the worst of times. It wasn't fun. People, people who post those clips on Twitter were like, oh, this was so much fun. They're lying. It was not fun. <laughs> it was awful. The team was terrible to watch. They were running, like, four-man big men lineups with, like, Oh, Don Maker. Yeah. <laughs> were, Swiss those are the days right there. It was so bad. You think so. two bigs is bad? We had four bigs on the floor at one point. And you hear Starlin or Colin Sexton just fighting for their life. <laughs> Would well, you have to watch willingly a Drummond Thon Maker pick and roll? <laughs> then you really know what kind of world you're in. I agree. And on that note, that's going to do it for this episode of the Junkyard Pod. 
want to thank everybody for watching or listening. Please consider hitting subscribe and sticking around. Please check in the description. You'll find all the links to my work for Write Down Euclid and Fear the Sword, Jackson at Write Down Euclid, Corey at Fear the Sword. Our Twitter or X links will be there as well. Please consider following us, hitting subscribe, and go Cavs. I agree, go Cavs. Thank you, Brian. Thank you.